My name is Bobby Crotty. I serve as the minister to men here at Watermark. Uh, my formal title is the men's equipping director. I've actually been on staff now for almost eight years. It'll be eight years June 1. And so uh, um, you would think I, I would uh, be getting the hang of this, but let me guarantee you I was a much better lawyer. I practiced law for 30 years uh, than I am a pastor. But I love to study the Word, and um, that kind of has just marked my walk with Christ, is that I have loved to be a student of the Word uh, from, oh, high school days. And so I've had the privilege of studying at the feet of some really gifted teachers. Um, and so if you go, well, obviously you didn't learn the lesson very well. Um, that's okay. It's not their fault. Uh, any shortcomings tonight are my problem, not theirs. Uh, but it's been really fun to uh, learn um, from a lot of different guys. Never been to seminary. And so I am living proof that you can learn the word. And more importantly, that as you learn it, that you can learn how to apply it to the daily decisions of your life. Now, fortunately, my wife's not here to go, well, you don't always apply it so well, okay? Um, but um, in acknowledging that fact, I am simply saying uh, what I think is characteristic of Watermark. We are not perfect people, but we have a perfect king that we serve, and we are on a perfect mission. And so uh, before I start preaching, let me pray, and uh, we'll get rolling. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to uh, come together as a uh, group of folks uh, called by your name, called by your son's name to uh, follow hard after him. And so, Lord, uh, tonight, may we open... uh, up the Gospels and talk about uh, um, your son, talk about uh, uh, his life here on earth, and talk about how that impacts the way we live our lives. And so, uh, Father, we're grateful for your son and for the privilege of having a relationship with you through him. And so, Father, I just want to say thanks for each one of these friends who have uh, given up a perfectly good Thursday night. Uh, to learn more about your word, and so I pray that you would bless our time, and that uh, your spirit would illuminate the truth of your word, and that it would uh, help us apply that truth in our daily lives. Amen. All right, well, let's jump in. Um, I've got pictures on all my slides from uh, a couple of trips I've made to uh, Israel, and uh, this happens to be the, the Wailing Wall that, you know, you've probably seen a, a bunch of times on um, TV and whatnot. And they were preparing for the celebration of the 60th anniversary of the founding of Israel uh, that happened a couple of days later. That's the reason for all those flags and whatnot. And so as we go through, if I don't talk about one of the slides and you want to know what it is, uh, then just remind me, and I'll uh, be glad to uh, talk about them. Okay, so here's what we're going to talk about uh, um, over the course of the next three weeks. It's going to be the New Testament. Tonight we're going to talk about the organization and geography of the New Testament. I don't know about y'all, but I love maps. Um, I was in the Army. There's nothing more dangerous than a second lieutenant with a map, and so uh, I learned how to read maps. 
And uh, it's hard to read the New Testament for me if I don't know um, where the places are that uh, are mentioned in the New Testament. So we're going to talk a little bit about geography. And then we're going to spend most of the time going through the different Gospels. And what I hope to do is to give you um, key verse, a theme, um, a, uh, uh, an outline, um, kind of a 30,000-foot view of the Gospels, as well as give you eight to ten really distinctive things about each one of the different Gospels. Okay, so that's tonight. Next week we'll talk about the book of Acts, and we'll cover um, all the epistles with the uh, paying particular attention to a couple of them. And the ones I've chosen are the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, because I think those are really key uh, books for us to understand and particularly to apply the truths that are taught in those books. And then the last night, um, I'm going to save to devote to uh, the book of Revelation, if it's okay with y'all, and we'll spend most of the evening talking about uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, as a young believer, I got started uh, being interested in prophecy, and I've uh, had the opportunity to spend a lot of time uh, studying the book of Revelation. And so what I hope to do is to really, uh, for those of you who uh, don't go hang out in Revelation very much, how many of y'all do uh, some of your uh, Bible study in the book of Revelation? Oh, we got a few. Well, that's good. But we only have a few. And so for the rest of you, uh, I really want to kind of put the cookies on the lower shelf so that you'll have a good understanding of the book of Revelation because it does two things for us. Um, not unlike the rest of Scripture, but in particular, it gives us hope that we know how the story is going to uh, turn out. And then second, it gives us motivation to go tell others about uh, how the story turns out. Okay, so that's an overview of the... Uh, Three weeks. Um, this photograph is from uh, uh, a little uh, area outside of uh, Nazareth called Nazareth Village that is a reenactment of first century uh, Nazareth. And so here's a carpenter working on, anybody know what that is? Hmm? Yeah, it looks like a divining rod. You go over and find water and whatnot. Uh, but actually, it's something that they put on the cattle or the ox uh, to guide them. And they would line up the plowing over, you know, it, the fork goes over the neck of the ox. And they'd line up the rows for plowing using uh, the top. Uh, let's see if I've got a little laser pointer. This little thing here. And so it was pretty cool to see the reenactment of first century Nazareth. Because you started to see how, as Christ taught, he, um, he walked along and talked about and used in his teaching things that were just right there in the view of everybody as they were walking along or as he was teaching on a seashore or whatnot, okay? All right, um, so open up your Bibles to uh, the table of contents. I think Blake probably did this in the... Uh, uh, Old Testament. We want to do the same thing in the New Testament. It helps me, and you know, I've uh, highlighted in uh, uh, the table of contents of my Bible um, the three different types of books that are found in the New Testament. 
So first we have five historical books, the Gospels and the book of Acts, okay? They're about uh, uh, the story of uh, the life of Christ and then about the start and spread of his church. Then we have 13 Pauline epistles, uh, Romans through uh, 2 Timothy, and then uh, those are followed by the nine general epistles with Revelation being a little bit different uh, than the rest of them because it focuses so much on the future. Okay, But these different uh, uh, types of literature tell one story, and it's in three parts. It's about Christ, his life and whatnot, and then about the start of his church, and then the spread of his church. Uh, here we are on the Sea of Galilee. We're actually looking down right here uh, towards a little village called uh, Migdal. That's what it's called today. Um, anybody identify someone who came from Migdal? Hmm? Mary Magdalene, exactly. That's right. Good job. Uh, Mary Magdalene, it, you know, it was... Uh, Magdalene uh, back in uh, first century days, but now it's called Migdal. And so uh, it's at the northwest corner of the uh, uh, Sea of Galilee. Okay, any questions about the organization? All right, here's a handy-dandy. How many uh, ED uh, participants do we have in here? Okay, a bunch. Well, th- does this look familiar? Because I stole it unashamedly from uh, Equip Disciple. Um, and it's something that um, a couple of the equipped disciple leaders uh, did that are architects and interior designers. And it's a great way to think through the New Testament. And so as you um, enter this house that uh, is the New Testament, you're there on the porch and the four pillars are the four Gospels. And you walk into the access foyer, the book of Acts. And then that takes you into uh, the rotunda, which is the book of Romans that is kind of the uh, um, centerpiece of the statement of the gospel that Paul preached and his theology. It's almost like it's Paul's last will and testament where he writes down things that he wants the church to know in case uh, uh, he gets hit by a bus. Okay, and then you come down to the uh, lower left corner, and you have the corner room, First and Second Corinthians, and then we have God's uh, electric power company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians in the electrical closet. We have the tea room with uh, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. And right next to that, of course, every uh, good house needs to have a place to keep the files and whatnot. We have the book of Philemon, right next to the kosher kitchen, Um, our book of Hebrews, which is next to the butler's pantry, the book of James. And next to that, we have uh, um, the boys' room, 1st and 2nd Peter. And then coming back towards the front of the house, we have uh, a room that every uh, house needs to have. We've got 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then we uh, transfer into uh, kind of the fun part with uh, Hey Jude leading into the home theater where there's a vision of the future with the book of Revelation. And I don't know if that helps you walk through the uh, New Testament, but 
let me guarantee you that if you will memorize the books of the New Testament, one, you'll save yourself a lot of time, but it'll help you start to put together the different types of literature and also the uh, uh, just, you know, how the New Testament is put together. Okay? Any questions on this? Okay, well, let's keep going. There we go. All right, so take out your map now. And here is a a map of what was first century Judea and the different regions that made up uh, the land of the Jews during the first century. And the things I want to focus on, I want to give you four bodies of water, then four regions, and then four cities. Okay? And so the four regions, uh, starting up at the top of the uh, map, um, if you are at Phoenicia or Syria, you're too far north. It really starts uh, in northern Israel. uh, We have Galilee. Okay? This is the area where uh, Jesus grew up, was in Galilee, and where he centered his initial ministry. Okay? Okay? And then down in the center section, we have uh, the region of Samaria. And then down at the bottom, we have Judea. And over to the side, um, look at the uh, region that's just north of the uh, Dead Sea. And you see the region of Perea. It's also called Transjordan in some Bibles. Okay, And so these are the four primary regions that uh, uh, Jesus walked through, that Jesus uh, ministered in, and uh, you'll see those mentioned uh, throughout. I'll show you a couple of slides here in just a minute that have different uh, uh, verses where these regions are mentioned. So four regions, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Perea or Transjordan. While we're up... Uh, the north, let's look at four bodies of water. And we start with the Sea of Galilee, this little lake up here. It's not very big. It's about uh, eight miles across and 14 miles long. Uh, but being there, it's kind of um, down in the bottom of like a bowl. You can understand how the storms would whip up on this coming from the north. And you can see how... Uh, as even though they were expert fishermen and whatnot and were used to being on the sea, um, how um, Jesus' disciples felt like that they were uh, in peril uh, in the midst of one of the storms that uh, the um, Gospels talk about. Okay, And so the Sea of Galilee in the north is connected with the Dead Sea in the south, The Dead Sea is not actually mentioned in the New Testament, but it is uh, mentioned in Ezekiel and other places in the Old Testament. And one of the prophecies in Ezekiel is that the Dead Sea will be made fresh again uh, during the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, And so uh, um, Sea of Galilee in the north, the connection is the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, where I was baptized. 
Um, I was baptized in the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, or uh, of the Jordan River, right as it comes out of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the water was pretty fresh, and it, it was um, not too murky, and there were huge catfish swimming around in the uh, uh, Jordan River, right where we were getting baptized. Um, okay, and so then the fourth body of water is the big one, the Mediterranean Sea off to the west. Okay, And that obviously plays a role in the book of Acts as Paul uh, makes journeys across uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And now let's talk about four cities. And let's start down here near uh, Jerusalem. We have the town of Bethlehem. We all know that old little town of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And right near it is... Uh, the city of uh, Jerusalem, it's approximately six miles away from Bethlehem. And then two other ones I would uh, uh, say that you should know are Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, spent his boyhood. Uh, Nazareth is right here, uh, just uh, kind of even with the south end of the Sea of Galilee. And then not right up at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. And that's where uh, Jesus um, used as his headquarters for uh, his Galilean ministry. Okay, so four regions, four bodies of water, and then four cities. Does that help give you a little feel for the geography of uh, Israel, of uh, first century Palestine? Any questions about that? Okay. Let's keep moving. Here we are. Uh, here are the uh, bodies of waters listed and uh, um, a verse where each is mentioned. There's the Ezekiel passage that talks about the Dead Sea becoming fresh. And we're actually standing on one of the sites of the uh, possible sites of the Sermon on the Mount, taking a picture looking back at the Sea of Galilee. And uh, this place just formed a natural amphitheater, and you could see how Jesus would be able to teach. And, you know, the people, even though it would be a huge crowd, would be able to hear him. But it was a beautiful day when we were up there. Um, here are the four regions, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Transjordan. And this picture is taken uh, of a friendly neighborhood Ibex that was uh, trotting along. And we're in the Judean wilderness, down south of Jerusalem. And then finally, here are the four cities. Uh, once again, we're back at the uh, uh, Nazareth, where the uh, reenactors, if you will, um, actually uh, were out there tending sheep, uh, just like they might have uh, in first century Palestine. So Bethlehem, Nazareth, Capernaum, and Judea. And there are verses where each one of those is mentioned. Okay, so now, as we talk about the Gospels, we have four pictures, one person. Okay? And if you think about it, the Gospels present Christ as, present Jesus as a feature, uh, as a figure making unique claims of authority tied to his unique relationship with God. 
And in doing that, they give diverse accounts of Jesus' ministry that aren't contradictory, um, but rather they paint a picture of, uh, that is tied together in such a way that you really get the idea of the unity of the Gospels, even though they um, depict Christ in different ways. What they're doing is they are uh, portraying themes uh, rather than trying to come up with a historical or chronological account. Here's how one commentator said. He said that rather than paint a, um, um, a picture, uh, a two-dimensional view of Christ, uh, having these different gospels really give us a three-dimensional sort of view. And even though they're historical writings in the sense that they record events that actually happened, uh, they're not always presented in strictly chronological fashion, but rather they're organized either topically or thematically. Okay, does that make sense? And let me give you an example of that. So in Matthew, uh, which is probably the least chronological of the four Gospels, uh, chapters 1 through 4 are pretty much in chronological order, and chapters 14 through 28 are chronological. But in chapters 5 through 13, they're really organized in a topical sort of way. Um, another example is uh, uh, Mark 2 through uh, about 3, 6 records five different controversies in a row. So it takes you know just a little more than a chapter. Whereas in Matthew, uh, these same controversies are reported... Uh, but they take um, as many as five chapters, okay? So each of the different authors has a a different view of Christ, and we're going to talk about that so that as you start to think about the Gospels, you'll have in mind a key word for each one of the Gospels. Here's how uh, Dr. Pentecost of DTS describes the Gospel accounts. He says, The Gospel writers make no attempt to provide a biography of Christ, Rather, they select and arrange, according to their individual emphasis and interpretation, that which presents the particular portrait of Christ they desire to convey. The Gospels present the life of Christ thematically and thus are to be viewed as complementary and supplementary rather than contradictory. And you know, gang, if we were sitting here and, uh, um, you know, imagine that there's a traffic intersection behind me. Okay, and all of a sudden, two cars come and collide right in front of us. How many different accounts do you think we would have of what just happened? A lot, because some of us would pay attention to one car and some to the other. Some of us would be looking down at our papers and would glance up at the last second and just see um, the cars collide. And so... Even though these are eyewitness accounts, they emphasize different aspects of the life of Christ. But they're doing so to, uh, they're doing it in a way that organizes the material thematically or topically, okay? Rather than strictly chronological. Now, uh, some aspects of the gospel are arranged in more or less chronological uh, manner. And so don't get uh, uh, confused or uh, concerned when you see, you know, things uh, appear in a little different order in the different Gospels. Okay, are you with me on that? Any questions?
Okay, so as we uh, let's talk about this uh, um, slide for just a second. You know, um, synoptic is a big word, but it simply means that uh, those are three gospels that are seen together. That's the meaning of synoptic. Okay, and so those gospels take more or less the same perspective on the events of the life of Christ. Doesn't mean that they're identical, but they um, borrow from each other. They use the same material. And what this uh, um, chart tries to do is to show you how much of the different portions of each one of the Gospels is um, drawn from one or more of the other Gospels. And so in the middle, in the purple, you see the triple tradition. And so 41% of Luke, 40 Uh, 5% of Matthew and 76% of Mark cover the same thing in the same sort of way. And then you can see how much of uh, uh, Mark and Luke share, how much uh, Mark and Matthew share. And uh, um, this is um, simply an effort to depict how the uh, uh, three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, share materials. Okay? Are you with me on that? It's kind of hard to understand this chart, but as you think about it, you're simply trying to see what sort of material is shared among those three Gospels. Now, the Gospel of John, you might go, well, why isn't it on there? Well, 93% or so of the material in the Gospel of John is unique. And so it really takes a totally different perspective on the life of Christ with a very different uh, purpose. Okay? Um, I probably overstate to say a very different purpose. All of these gospels are attempting to show that Jesus uh, was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah, and that he came, uh, lived, died on a cross, uh, was buried, and was resurrected to pay for our sins. Okay? And so the purpose of all of them are to demonstrate that. Uh, but each one is organized and presents Christ in a different way. Okay, you with me on that? All right, so remember, four pictures, one person. And so let's talk about um, the different uh, pictures here and compare and contrast the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with the Gospel of John. And so I've tried to organize this around... uh, um, different topics you can see on the uh, left side of the uh, slide. Um, Geography, the synoptics concentrate on the Galilean ministry of Christ, whereas John concentrates on his ministry around Jerusalem. You can see that the teaching uh, or the discourse material is uh, more public in the synoptics where Jesus is teaching the crowds. And uh, with John, it's more private or more individual as he's teaching his disciples. The teaching uh, um, method is different. The synoptics typically use parables, whereas uh, John uses allegories. And by allegories, I mean, you know, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we don't think that he is a loaf of bread, okay? But he's simply saying that, hey, I will 
provide life to you and sustain you in the same way that bread sustains us. We need to eat on a daily basis. And in our relationship with Christ, we need to be walking with him um, on a daily basis. Does that make sense? Okay, and that's all I mean by allegory. The teaching emphasis is different. Uh, The synoptics emphasize practical teachings, whereas John focuses on the person of Christ. And then uh, even the perspectives are a little different. Um, The synoptics are more historical in their orientation, whereas the uh, Gospel of John is more theological. Okay, And so what I'm doing is I'm simply trying to give you an overview so you kind of get the big picture of the differences and the similarities between the gospel accounts. Okay, and Is this helping? Okay, So this is simply trying to let you compare and contrast the different uh, um, gospels based on, you know, are they a part of the synoptics or is it the gospel of John? Let's also take a look in the uh, next slide. This is actually something that's out out of the Journey Journal, and it gives you a little timeline that simply is a a best estimate of some of the uh, important events. It's probably too small for you to see on the screen, but you can see if uh, Christ was crucified, and some scholars say AD 30, some say AD 33. I picked AD 33. Um, primarily because I was relying on a great little book um, that was, that's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. And so if you like dates and you want to understand, well, when, was, uh, when did Christ live and how did the dates work out and that sort of thing, um, the um, head of the Dallas Seminary uh, uh, New Testament Department was a man named Harold Honer for a number of years, He's probably written the leading commentary on the book of uh, Ephesians. I think he's gone home to be with the Lord now. Uh, But he has this slim little volume on the chronological aspects of the life of Christ that is fascinating. And so if you're interested in those sort of things and you want to say, well, do we know when Christ really died? Check out uh, Dr. Honer's book. Okay, and while I'm talking about books... Let me go on and get this out of the way. I brought a couple here that uh, I want to suggest to you. Um, This first one is written by a guy named Daryl Bach. Daryl Bach uh, um, is another DTS prof. Uh, He is the uh, expert on the Gospel of Luke. His commentary on the Gospel of Luke is two volumes, uh, each of which is about that thick. Okay? And so, uh, um, great um, commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Um, And this will, this seeks to be a look at the life of Christ um, based on what the scriptures have to say. And it's a chronological look at the life of Christ, if you will. So, um, if you're interested in reading something that tries to make sense of the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, Uh, as taken right out of the scriptures, this is a great little book to help you. This other book is called A Guide to the Gospels. I'm going to leave these up here so y'all can come look at them um, after we're done. Um, This other one is called A Guide to the Gospels. It's written by a guy named Graham Scroggy, and uh, it was published a long time ago. Let's see if I can... 
Uh, originally published in 1948. But this is still one of the best uh, efforts at comparing and contrasting uh, the, the different Gospels. Um, you want to know how many miracles are recorded in the Gospel of Luke? Scroggy will tell you. If you want to know how many parables there are, things like that, uh, this is a great little analytical study of the Gospels. A Guide to the Gospels by Graham Scroggy, S-C-R-O-G-G-I-E. Uh, the first book is called uh, Jesus According to Scripture by Daryl Bock, B-O-C-K. Jesus According to Scripture. Okay, so let's dive into uh, the Gospels themselves. And we'll start with Matthew and just go through. The theme I picked uh, for uh, Matthew is the one that uh, most scholars pick because it depicts Christ as the promised king. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. He is the uh, king of the Jews that uh, was promised in the Old Testament. Okay? This gospel is written primarily uh, to uh, the Hebrews, okay, to the Jews. And uh, um, one of the emphases, emphasis of the uh, gospel is um, teaching. Approximately 60% of the gospel records the teaching of Christ. And uh, um, there are found uh, at least six of the major discourses that Christ gave um, during uh, his three-year ministry. Okay, here's a little outline. Uh, um, we have in uh, chapters 1 through 4, basically, the preparation of the king. Chapters, uh, uh, the end of 4 through 16, the presentation of the king. And finally, we have the passion of the king from uh, the end of 16 through the end of the book. Here is uh, um, something that... Um, Hmm? Um, okay, the question is, what do I mean by the passion of the king? Okay, um, in the life of Christ, passion simply relates to the passion week, relates to the last week of Christ's life. Um, his uh, teaching in Jerusalem, his um, last supper, the betrayal, arrest, trials, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That last week is uh, known as the Passion Week. Okay, does that help? And uh, simply it's just something that, uh, um, you know, uh, it's a reason why Mel Gibson named his movie The Passion of Christ because it covers the last week of Christ's life. And that is traditionally known as the Passion Week. This little photo is taken along one of the paths in Nazareth Village, uh, and you can see some of the uh, thistles have grown up here. And you could really see as we were walking along that as Jesus is um, given the parable of the soils, he undoubtedly saw and the, uh, his listeners saw each of these different types of soil right there around them, the rocky path, um, the thorns and whatnot, 
and so you can just see how he used everyday, ordinary things that were right around him to illustrate his teaching. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and let me give you several distinctives about it. Here's what one scholar has said about it. It said, If a Bible reader were to jump from Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, into Mark or Acts or Romans, he would be bewildered. Matthew's Gospel is the bridge that leads us out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And in doing so, he uses uh, his gospel, Matthew's gospel, is distinctively Jewish, which makes sense. As we go out of the Old Testament, we use uh, the bridge of Matthew to take us into the New Testament. And so why do I say it's distinctively Jewish? Well, his vocabulary and his subject matter focus on things that are distinctively Jewish. He refers to the Old Testament um, 130 times or so more than any other gospel. And we start in uh, uh, Matthew 1 with a genealogy. And uh, if you've read through the Old Testament on the journey, you know that those guys loved genealogies. But this genealogy is really important because it takes Christ back to the um, kinship with Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, and their greatest king, uh, David and shows that he is both a son of Abraham and a son of David. Okay? Matthew gives prominent attention to Peter, uh, who was the apostle to the Jews, we'll see in the book of Acts. And Matthew also refers to a, a bunch of different Jewish customs without explaining them, evidently because his original readers would have needed no explanation. And in contrast to that, we're going to see in the Gospel of Mark uh, that's written primarily to a Roman audience that Mark explained a bunch of either Aramaic terms or uh, Jewish customs that the Roman readers of uh, Mark's Gospel would not have been familiar with. Okay, and so another distinctive emphasis we've talked about already, but uh, about 60% of the book focuses on Jesus' teaching. No other gospel contains as many of Jesus' discourses and sermons, um, his instructions and whatnot. And it has six major ones, okay? Anybody name one of them? Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5 through 7. What else? Pardon? The Olivet Discourse. Uh, that's a, a, a very important one for this day and age particularly. Um, what does the Olivet Discourse deal with? Um, Jesus was actually sitting on the Mount of Olives when he gave it, and that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And it occurs because his disciples come up to him and say, Hey, Lord, look how cool the temple is. Isn't it beautiful? And he says, well, you guys don't know it, but not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It's going to all be destroyed. And that causes them to think, all right, so we're talking about the future. So let's ask him, when is he coming back and what are going to be the signs of his coming back? And the Olivet Discourse is all about Jesus' answer to those questions that the disciples put to him. Okay? What other ones can you think of? 
Anyone? Well, the Beatitudes are part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? All right, well, let me give you a couple of them. In chapter 10, he gives a charge to the apostles as he sends them out um, to uh, do ministry. In chapter 13, he gives a bunch of kingdom parables. Uh, approximately, let's see, I think they're um, six or so, um, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, there are um, at least six right there in chapter 13. In chapter 18, he has a great lesson on who is, in answering the question, who is the greatest that the disciples have been discussing among themselves. Jesus answers that for them and also talks about forgiveness. Matthew 18 is something we use here at Watermark a lot, okay? Uh, because it deals with, you know, what, what do we do if someone sins against us? And so Matthew 18, 15 through um, 17 or 18 talks about the process that you go through in conflict resolution. We use that passage a bunch here at Watermark. And then um, right before the Olivet Discourse, we have uh, um, in chapter 23, uh, Jesus pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees. I'm sure you've read that before. That's not, you know, he calls them whitewashed tombs, and that's not the sort of thing that you want um, uh, a rabbi saying about the uh, leading uh, religious figures of your day. Okay, and so Matthew uses, another distinctive of it, is that he uses a key phrase every time uh, um, he's getting ready to change to uh, a different section of his gospel. And this phrase is, uh, and it came about that when Jesus had finished. You can find that same phrase in uh, chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 53, chapter 19, verse 1, chapter 26, verse 1. And it always occurs at the end of one of his discourses. And it's just a, a device that an author uses to signal his audience that, hey, we're getting ready to change subjects, okay? So that's a distinctive of the Gospel of Matthew. He emphasizes that Jesus teaches the real meaning of the Old Testament, and uh, I'm sure Blake shared with you the uh, phrase that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, okay? And so Matthew does that, uh, he emphasizes uh, that uh, um, Jesus is teaching in the New Testament the real meaning of the Old Testament. You can see that particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. This gospel presents the arrival of the kingdom of heaven that's both uh, present as Christ is on earth, and it's also um, considered to be yet to come because uh, um, he's coming back. And he first presents the kingdom to the lost sheep of Israel. You can read that in Matthew 10, 6. And he calls on them to repent, to change their current practices. He expresses their, his authority over both sin and the Sabbath. And he calls on them to offer mercy instead of sacrifice. Um, it's about the heart. And that's 
the, the message of the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings in the book of uh, uh, Matthew. And so what was Matthew? What was his occupation? Tax collector, exactly. And so it's not surprising that the Gospel of Matthew um, has more references to coins than any other of the Gospels. In fact, he mentions at least three coins that are not mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. And you can see that in uh, Matthew seventeen twenty four, the two drachma coin, seventeen twenty seven, the four drachma coin, and in eighteen twenty four, the talents. A couple other things, and this one really, uh, um, as you compare and contrast the gospels, uh, jumps out at you, and that's Matthew's humility. Okay. It comes through as he consistently identifies himself as Matthew the tax collector. Neither Mark nor, you, or, nor Luke use that term of Matthew. And in fact, uh, when Matthew begins to follow Jesus, uh, he gives a, uh, um, what he describes as a dinner uh, for his friends to introduce, him, uh, introduce them to Christ. Well, he calls it a dinner, but uh, let's see, in the Gospel of uh, Luke, Luke describes it as a great banquet, something that Luke took note of. And uh, it underscores that Matthew had a completely humble perspective of himself, and we see that throughout. And so as we finish thinking about the Gospel of Matthew, you need to think king and teaching or discourses because of the emphasis of Jesus' teaching ministry, 60% of the book is about Jesus' teaching ministry. Okay? Any questions on Matthew? It's a quick flyby, but what we're trying to do is to give you a skeleton just to, uh, as you go back and now read through the Gospel of Matthew, um, you'll have... Uh, the opportunity to keep in mind, hey, this is all about declaring that Jesus is the promised king, that he is the Messiah. And so how do these stories uh, that are presented in the Gospel of uh, Matthew depict Christ as the king? Okay, the next Gospel, Mark. Mark presents Christ as the suffering servant. The audience, uh, uh, I've already indicated, is uh, um, likely uh, Romans. And uh, um, uh, he's writing to uh, believers in Rome. Uh, and so there's a Gentile flavor to the gospel of uh, uh, Mark. The emphasis is really on uh, the miracles. Christ is depicted as a man of action a man of deeds, and uh, you see the word immediately used 42 times in the uh, Gospel of Mark. Um, one thing I didn't talk about about Matthew was the key verse. I picked up uh, Matthew 16, 16, and that's where Christ has asked, you know, who do people say that I am? And the, his disciples give uh, some answers, and then he focuses in on who do you say that I am? And that's really one of Peter's shining moments because he answers, you are uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. 
with a ringing declaration of who Christ is. And you know, gang, that same question echoes throughout the halls of history. Down through time, we have to ask ourselves, who do we say that Jesus is? And, you know, that's one of the uh, focuses of the Gospel of uh, Matthew, that um, Matthew is saying, I am depicting Christ as the king because I want to convince you that you should make him the king of your life. And so for the key verse for the Gospel of uh, Mark, I pick uh, uh, Mark 10.45. It says that the uh, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he focuses on the fact that um, he himself is a servant, and he has come to serve, and he calls us as his followers to do likewise. Mark 10, 45. Um, This picture is actually from uh, the synagogue, the um, restored synagogue in the uh, city of Capernaum, which is just a short walk from uh, Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house. And uh, um, the, uh, uh, you can see on the foundation of the temple uh, stones actually going back to the first century period. All right, here's a little outline of uh, um, Mark. Uh, we have the same sort of thing that goes on in each one of the Gospels because Christ is presented as uh, here the servant. And we see opposition to the servant in uh, uh, chapters 2 through 8. And we see uh, instruction by the servant in 8 through 10. And then uh, Mark is uh, uh, interesting, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, but just to uh, give you a little heads up, uh, Mark spends about one-third of his gospel focusing on the last week of Christ's life. Okay, so the Passion Week is the focus of the last third of the Gospel of of Mark. And we see that in the rejection of the servant in 11 through 15, and then finally the resurrection of the servant. And here I put in a a little uh, reminder to myself to talk about uh, the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark ends with what is called either the shorter ending that ends at verse 8 or the longer ending that ends at verse 20. Um, And I think scholars would agree today uh, that it's most likely that as originally written, the Gospel of Mark probably did not include verses 9 through 20. It doesn't mean that they're not historically accurate necessarily, but it just means that they were not likely a part of the Gospel of Mark when it was originally written. Okay? And so in your Bibles, I don't know how it's depicted, but typically they'll be put in brackets or something to indicate that these verses may not have been a part of the original Gospel. Okay, everybody with me on that? All right, so let's talk about some of the distinctives of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel. Early tradition says that he wrote in Rome, and there are many indications in the uh, text of the gospel that point to him having written for Gentile readers. 
You know, where Matthew didn't explain Jewish custom, Mark does explain Jewish customs that would have been unfamiliar to Gentile readers. He translates Aramaic words and tells uh, the readers what they mean. And interestingly, he uses a number of Latin words that he borrows, indicating the Roman influence. It's not surprising that he showed a special interest in persecution and martyrdom because this would have been of special interest to the uh, believers in Rome because they themselves were undergoing persecution. Here's uh, one of the um, most fascinating things about Mark. He uses a forceful and vigorous writing style. He frequently uses what's called the historical present tense, which has the... um, impact of making you feel like you're right there witnessing as an eyewitness the events that are going on, okay? He uses the word immediately a bunch. It's like everything is happening right in front of you. And so the result is that you feel like that you're getting an eyewitness account and that you likely are right there in the middle of the story. Uh, Tradition says that he likely used Peter as his source, And uh, um, he records uh, a bunch of intimate uh, details that only an eyewitness would have uh, observed. He dresses his readers directly through uh, Jesus' word, and he uses rhetorical questions uh, addressed to the reader to bring them into the story. And this gives the reader the feeling that uh, uh, the reader is interacting with the story personally. And it also impresses upon the reader the need to respond to the uh, um, story as well, to the facts that are being uh, presented. And, you know, Mark wanted his readers to know that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God and to have to personally deal with that. He stresses Jesus' acts and miracles. And uh, uh, not surprisingly, he records a a much smaller portion of Jesus' words and a greater portion of his works, his acts. Jesus comes through the gospel as a a man of action. Uh, Mark records 18 of uh, Jesus' miracles, but only four parables and only one discourse, compared with Matthew uh, um, focusing on six discourses. Um, candor is something that marks this gospel. He doesn't glorify the gospels, but he uh, records them doing unflattering sort of things like criticizing Jesus. Uh, He describes the hostility of Jesus' family members uh, toward him. Uh, And he also stresses Jesus' human reactions and emotions. Um, Jesus is depicted as showing anger towards the Pharisees. But most of all, Mark wanted his readers to endure suffering and persecution for their uh, faith well. And so, as I said, about a third of the gospel deals with the final week of Christ's life. And there are many other references to suffering throughout the book. And so um, what he is you know, setting us up to understand is that as disciples of Christ, we too are going to undergo suffering and to be ready for it, and to use Christ as our example as we deal with that. And this would have really ministered to his original readers because they themselves were undergoing suffering. 
And so, you know, bottom line is uh, Mark shows that Jesus was the servant of God who suffered as no other person has suffered. And he stresses Jesus' obedience to his Father's will. And this makes Jesus an example for all of us to follow. Um, Mark ten forty five that he it was the suffering servant. And uh, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and he calls us to do the same thing. And so for the Gospel of Mark, think uh, miracles, and most of all, think servant. So Matthew depicts Christ as the king, and Mark depicts him as the servant. And now we move to the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke, where the... Uh, predominant theme is that Luke depicts Christ as the Son of Man. Okay? This was one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. It comes out of uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel. And uh, um, I think Jesus refers to himself as uh, the Son of Man in the Gospels um, over 80 times. The audience uh, is Gentiles, and it's not surprising because Luke was the only Gentile author of Scripture. Okay? And the emphasis is on the outsiders because Luke focuses, you know, he himself is an outsider. He's a Gentile. And so he focuses on women, sinners, the lost, um, children, all those sort of uh, folks who in polite first century Jewish society would have been considered outsiders. Okay? For the key verse, I picked up uh, um, Luke 19.10, which says that uh, for the Son of Man uh, came to seek and to save the lost. And I think that captures in just a few words what this gospel is all about. And it's not surprising with Luke being uh, a Gentile, an outsider, that he would focus his gospel on that. And while Mark was the shortest gospel, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And together with the book of Acts, which uh, Luke also authored, uh, it comprises about 27 or 28 percent of the Greek New Testament. The second longest book is Matthew, and Acts is the third longest book. So Luke sets forth in, in, you know, Luke was a physician, and uh, um, he uh, was also a uh, historian, and he sets forth right up front his purposes. And he says he's uh, trying to write an orderly account so that someone, uh, people uh, speculate whether Theophilus was a person or um, um, a um, royal official or just who he was, uh, I think he likely was a person, uh, may have been a royal official, uh, but he says that he is writing this orderly account so that Theophilus might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And his second purpose is to present Christ as the Son of Man who is rejected by Israel, which caused Jesus to preach the kingdom to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might be saved as well. And in keeping with Luke being a historian, he gives uh, the reader more, a more comprehensive grasp of the history of the period than the other Gospels. He presents more facts about the earthly life of Jesus than the other Gospels. Uh, we have the birth account of, of uh, um, Christ, thanks to uh, Luke's account in Luke 2, the Christmas story. 
Um, it's interesting that uh, no one really knows Luke's educational background, but he clearly had training in Greek composition as well as ma- uh, medicine, and he also had a talent for writing because scholars would tell you that the Greek of Luke is the most beautiful Greek of the New Testament. He had a huge vocabulary, larger than any other New Testament writer, and he uses over 800 words that are not found uh, anywhere else in the New Testament. He uses uh, uh, medical terms in keeping with his uh, um, background as a physician. Uh, For example, in Luke 18.25, where he's talking about uh, um, a camel going through the eye of a needle, well, Matthew and Mark recount the same thing, and they just use an ordinary, uh, the term for an ordinary sewing needle. But Luke uses a technical medical term for a surgical needle in keeping with his background as a surgeon. He also uh, um, he notes medical uh, conditions that are not mentioned in the rest of the Gospels. Um, such as Christ sweating blood. And he also uses a bunch of theological terms that are unique, and it's clear that his use of uh, Semitic phrases underscore that he really knew his Old Testament as well. About 20 of Jesus' parables are unique to the Gospel of Luke, and he also related events in Jesus' life to secular history. And one of the organizing features of the Gospel of Luke is the uh, what sometimes called the travel log that uh, follows what Christ is doing from about the end of chapter nine through nineteen, because it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, and so he was a man on a mission to go to Jerusalem, where he told his disciples that he would be um, betrayed, arrested, and crucified, and then ra- raised from the dead. Okay, and so remember that as you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, chapters uh, the end of 9 through 19 deal with this mission to get to Jerusalem, and uh, at the end of 19, he arrives there in Jerusalem. It's not surprising as the only Gentile writer of the New Testament that Luke stresses Jesus' concern for all peoples, especially the outsiders, as I uh, said earlier. Gentiles, poor, women, children, sinners. Um, And it's also not surprising that he emphasizes Jesus' practical teachings, such as what he taught about money. In fact, Luke 16 is sometimes called the money chapter uh, of the New Testament. And, you know, whereas Adam, I'm sorry, whereas Matthew took his genealogy back to um, Abraham. Luke has a genealogy as well that goes all the way back to Adam, underscoring uh, that uh, um, uh, as the son of man, he goes all the way back to the first man. You can see that in uh, chapter 3. Luke accompanied Paul during much of Paul's missionary ministry. And even at times when Luke was not with Paul, he was ministering as Paul's representative. And so it's not surprising that it's likely that Paul was uh, a primary source for much of um, Luke's information for both the Gospel of Luke and um, the book of Acts. A couple other notes. Uh, uh, Luke emphasizes forgiveness. 
He emphasizes prayer. We're going to see that again in the gospel of, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, there's references to prayer in just about every chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, he uh, folk, he talks about material things and how we're to handle material things, and he also emphasizes throughout the joy that accompanies both faith and salvation. And finally, um, pay particular attention when you're reading through the Gospel of, uh, of Luke that how many questions that Luke uses, um, how many questions are asked in the Gospel of Luke. You can actually follow through the storyline of the Gospel of Luke by simply following and answering the questions. And so for Luke, think son of man and think parables and outsiders. And that brings us to the Gospel of John. Matthew depicts Christ as? Mark depicts him as? Luke depicts him as? Son of man. And John depicts him as? Son of God. Here we go. Um, You know... He's not writing to um, Gentiles in Rome. He's not writing to outsiders. John's writing to everybody because he is depicting Christ as the Son of God. He emphasizes from start to finish um, Jesus' deity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how he starts his uh, gospel. I picked uh, as a key verse, um, chapter 20, verse 31, where... um, John says, uh, I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that you will have eternal life. That's his purpose from start to finish to show that Jesus is the Son of God and that we can have life by believing in him. There's a little outline for you. Let's talk about some of the distinctives. The deity of Christ, that emphasis uh, uh, goes throughout. um, And um, um, one of the high points is uh, um, something that Wagner just talked about recently about Thomas. Remember doubting Thomas? You know, he gets the rap of uh, being the guy who missed Bible class and uh, he missed seeing the Lord the first time. And uh, he said, uh, I'm not going to believe it until... I see the holes in his hand. And uh, Jesus shows up eight days later and says, all right, Thomas, come look. And what we don't remember is that Thomas falling to his knees uh, issues one of the great ringing declarations of who Christ is. And he says, my Lord and my God. Man, give me a big dose of that as my... um, reaction to Christ. The key word in the book is the verb believe. It's used uh, um, 98 times. And you know what's amazing is that the noun form belief doesn't appear at all. And so I think what John is doing is that he is stressing the importance of an active vital trust in Christ. That we are to believe in Christ. That's the whole purpose of this gospel. Other key words are witness, love, abide, light, life, 
And each of these words identifies key themes of the Gospel of John. You know, John's unique purpose accounted for his selection of the material that he presents. Listen to the things that are not in the Gospel of John. No genealogy, no birth account, no baptism, no temptations, no uh, exercising demons, no parables, no transfiguration mentioned, um, no institution of the Lord's Supper, um, no uh, discussion of the agony in Gethsemane, no uh, reference to the ascension. He focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, uh, on the Jewish feasts, on Jesus' private conversations, and on especially his preparation of the disciples. One of the great discourses of the New Testament uh, is the upper room discourse that's found in John 13 through 17. John selected, uh, in fact, uh, chapters 2 through 12 are often called the book of signs. He selected seven signs or miracles that demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the divine Messiah. He also recorded the discourses that Christ gave following these signs that explain their significance. He stresses uh, seven unique I am statements. We'll uh, take a look at those uh, um, in a little more detail. He also identifies seven witnesses in his gospel uh, who give an account for who Christ is. So John the Baptist says, this is the Son of God. Nathaniel, after he meets Jesus, says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Peter calls him the Holy One of God. Jesus himself identifies himself as the Son of God. How about Martha? You know, Martha often gets a bad rap in comparison with Mary. Uh, You can read about uh, Mary and Martha in Luke 10. But in uh, John 11, it's Martha who says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Thomas, we've talked about, my Lord and my God. And then finally, John in uh, John 20, uh, verse 31, uh, he says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's why I've written this book, so that you might believe that. As I indicated earlier, about 93% of the material in John's gospel doesn't appear in the other three gospels. It's unique. And so it underscores the uniqueness of the gospel, and uh, uh, it even stresses Jesus' deity even more. Listen to what one scholar says about the fourth gospel. He says, uh, it's the simplest and yet most profound of the Christian gospels. The Greek is the simplest. First-year Greek students love the Gospel of John because it's pretty easy to read. Uh, But the description of the deity of Christ is indeed profound. So for for the Gospel of John, think Son of God. And remember, uh, seven signs, seven I am statements, and seven witnesses. And also remember that verb believe. That's what we're to do. We are to have an active faith that believes in Christ to the point that we change the way that we live our lives because of his calling on our life. That's what the Gospel of John is about. All right, so I'm sprinting through the Gospels, um, and I want to close by talking about seven things that you ought to know about the life of Christ. Okay? You still with me? Everybody doing all right? All right. 
So, seven things to know about Christ. And we'll talk about some of these. We'll slow down and talk about a few of these. Uh, His birth, you can read about that in Luke 2. Uh, His baptism, John, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Here is uh, uh, the uh, place where I got baptized in the Jordan River. Uh, His temptations, uh, they're recounted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. His teaching ministry we're going to talk more about. His miracles we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, His transfiguration, uh, you can read about that. I think it's in Matthew 18 uh, in particular. And then finally, his passion week, what happened in the last, last week of Christ's life. Okay, so let's dig in. Let's focus first on his teaching ministry. Um, This tree that's right here, this is right by uh, one of the um, likely Sermon on the Mount sites. And this tree is known as Christ's thorn tree because it is the tree from which the crown of thorns was made. Okay, and so we've talked a little bit about uh, um, the uh, discourses. We've added in the uh, um, upper room discourse in John uh, 13 through 17. And it's not surprising that we see most of these come from the Gospel of Matthew. So seven major discourses in Christ's teaching ministry. But that wasn't all that he used. He also used parables. Okay? And here are some of the uh, parables that are some of my favorites. Um, and he uh, gave more than 50 parables in the course of his teaching ministry. And let's talk a little bit about parables. So a good parable creates distance, it provokes, and it appeals. So what do I mean by that? Well, by creating distance, it kind of takes the pressure off the hearer. And he gives them a chance to reconsider. There's no need for them to defend their turf or whatnot. But it also provokes by requiring new thought patterns. And it appeals in calling us to make decisions that line up with the point that Jesus makes. So let me give you five principles about parables. Okay, first, they're stories taken from everyday life that seek to change behavior and create disciples. They're stories taken from everyday life that seek to change behavior and create disciples. They tell about God and his kingdom, the new reality that God seeks to establish on the earth through his son. They create interest by drawing in the hearer to deal with a particular uh, issue. Okay, think of the... uh, um, parable of the prodigal son, or it's probably better called the compassionate father because uh, of the picture it gives of this father who runs after his wayward son. And the uh, parable of the prodigal son is uh, uh, a perfect illustration of this next item. It contains elements of shock and surprise to cause the audience to reorient their thinking and behavior. And so what's shocking about the uh, parable of the prodigal son? Well, no self-respecting son 
would have ever gone to his father, um, and particularly not the, uh, the, the younger son, and asked for his portion of the inheritance. And no self-respecting Jewish father would have ever given uh, an inheritance to uh, his son before it was time. No self-respecting Jewish father would have ever run after his son, particularly after a prodigal son. And yet you see um, that God uses that to illustrate how God pursues us. Uh, Think about the um, Good Samaritan. Think about the parable about uh, uh, the tax collector and the uh, um, Pharisees, the religious leaders. Um, The heroes of those parables are exactly the wrong people. Okay, First century uh, Jewish listeners would have gasped when the hero of the parable of the Good Samaritan was a Samaritan because they hated Samaritans. And um, the Lord was uh, using that to, wow, encourage them to, uh, uh, to change their thinking. Okay, So it contains elements of shock and surprise to cause the audience to reorient their thinking and behavior. And then finally, this is a big help. Typically, the parables will put the most important thing at the end. Okay? And so pay particular attention as you're reading parables to the end. And so um, I wish we had more time to talk about the Good Samaritan or the soils or the kingdom parables or whatnot. Um, But I'll stick around and be happy to talk about those things with you. Um. Part of the teaching ministry was the seven I am's that are depicted in the Gospel of uh, John. Those tell us a lot about who Christ is. And uh, uh, I've summarized them up here for you. And uh, I've given you a little sentence down here at the bottom that I use to help remember what these things are. Um, Blue lions go south running with vigor. Okay? And so, okay, so it's a silly sentence, but it helps me remember that blue stands for the bread of life, and lion stands for light of the world. Um, Go stands for the gate or door. South stands for the good shepherd. Uh, Running stands for the resurrection and the life. Uh, With stands for the way, the truth, and the life. Vigor stands for I am the vine. And so in under... In understanding what Jesus is trying to teach by each of those different uh, um, metaphors, if you will, um, you can understand more about Christ. And use uh, something silly like that to help you remember what are the seven I am's uh, in the Gospel of John. Same thing for uh, the seven signs. My uh, sentence for that and Here we have the Pool of Bethesda that still, um, you can see the ruins of it uh, uh, in uh, Jerusalem today. Um, Wild squirrels inhabit forests with brown leaves. And so Jesus turned water into wine. He uh, um, healed a royal official's son. He healed an invalid at the Pool of Bethesda. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He... uh, um, healed a blind man, uh, blind Bartimaeus, and uh, um, he raised Lazarus. And so those signs are, uh, if you will, those are Jesus' uh, 
uh, authentication that he is indeed the promised Messiah because he has done signs that say only the promised Messiah could do these signs. And so by remembering the, the seven I am's and the seven signs, it really helps give you a handle on the gospel of John. Okay, so here's kind of a, a brief little outline of the last week of Christ's life. Starts with the triumphal entry where he is hailed as the uh, uh, promised Messiah. Um, next, we have the cleaning of the temple, the clearing of the temple, temple where he, he turns over the tables of the money changers and runs them out of the temple and says that, hey, my dad's house is a house of prayer and you've turned it into a robber's den. Uh, the Olivet Discourse we've talked about uh, occurs. Then uh, on Thursday or so, uh, we had the Last Supper, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is actually an olive tree in uh, the site of the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and we have his betrayal, arrest, and trials. And then finally, his crucifixion and resurrection. And so I give those to you to try to give you a handle on the events of the last week of Christ's life. There are obviously other things that happened during that week as well, but these are some of the major ones. Um, I would not be uh, true to my profession as a lawyer if I didn't outline for you the six trials that Christ went, uh, underwent, okay? Um, because they're kind of hard to figure out um, where are they and uh, who were they before. So he appears first before Annas, then he goes in front of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was actually the high priest at that time, but Annas had been the high priest previously and was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Uh, then he is tried before the Council of Elders, the Sanhedrin. He's taken then to Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says, ah, this guy's a Galilean. I'm going to send him to Herod and let Herod have to deal with him. And so he goes before Herod. And then finally, uh, Herod says he can't find anything wrong with him, and he sends him back to Pilate. And we know what happens from there. This is actually uh, a um, the steps leading down I'm standing in a prison cell underneath Caiaphas's house that could well have been a first century prison cell, okay, and was certainly like what um, Christ or the apostles um, could have endured when they were imprisoned at various times. All right, um, finally, seven sayings on the cross. These are the last uh, uh, communications of Christ. Uh, I don't know if you can tell from this photograph, but um, this looks like a skull, and it is one of the possible sites of Golgotha, the place of the skull. Okay? And so uh, here are the different sayings. Father, forgive them. Um, Today you'll be with me in paradise, he says to the thief on the cross. Uh, to Mary, he says, woman, behold your son, saying, hey, uh, I'm not going to be here anymore, but John is going to take care of you. And he says to John, behold your mother. And from that point on, John took Mary into his household and provided for her. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, I think that occurs at the point of his uh, undergoing judgment for our sins, for my sins. 
Uh, and, you know, gang, to me, that's the real agony of the cross. It's not the physical suffering, uh, as horrible as the physical suffering uh, must have been. But the agony was that he was separated from the perfect fellowship that he had enjoyed from eternity past with the Father and with the Spirit. And that was agony for him. And he says, I thirst. Um, Finally, he says, it is finished. And it's the first of three, it is finished or it is done, that appear in the uh, New Testament. And we'll talk about the other two because they appear in the book of Revelation. Okay? And so here, uh, Christ says it is finished as he's finished with paying uh, the penalty for sin. And then finally, uh, he um, dismisses his spirit. And all this underscores that Jesus was in control all the way through. And the Romans didn't kill Christ. Christ dismissed his spirit. He was in charge. He was in control with the things that were happening. And when he was ready to give up his life, that's when he died. And then finally, it wouldn't be right to close without a reference to the resurrection. I love Matthew 28, 6, in three little Greek words, uk esten hode, Christ is... Um, reported that he is not here, and he is indeed resurrected. This is uh, known as the garden tomb, and uh, um, you know the chances of it being the real tomb that Christ was buried in, uh, I think, are uh, probably pretty remote. But as our 85-year-old British uh, um, um, guide said, um, if this isn't the place, it is a great example of what it may have looked like. All right, so we have rushed through the, the Gospels, and I have three whole minutes left. Um, here we are standing on the uh, Mount of Olives looking across the Cadrone Valley at the uh, um, wall of the city, and this gate right here is known as the Beautiful Gate or the eastern gate into the city. And uh, um, the Old Testament tells us that that is where Messiah will return one day to enter the city of Jerusalem uh, at his second coming. So I want to leave you with the uh, uh, four pictures as Christ is depicted as the king, the servant, the son of man, and the son of God in each of the uh, four different Gospels, okay? All right, so we have time for a few questions. Uh, um, anybody have any questions? Or are you all sleepy and ready to go home? Yes, sir. Um, well, typically, and that's a great question, uh, the question was, what does the number seven represent in Scripture? Okay, um, Typically, it is a picture of completeness. Okay, And we will talk about the number seven uh, when we talk about uh, the book of Revelation because the number seven appears throughout uh, the book of Revelation. In fact, uh, Revelation is organized around three series of seven judgments each. 
known as the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And we're going to talk about those um, in the third week. Yes, sir. Uh, the seven I M's. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Well, that's three different ways of um, referring to the same area. You know, that's the you know. It's um, this area that's depicted in the map here where the Jews lived during the first century is referred to in each of those different ways, okay? Um, So whether you call it Judea, um, you know, it's like uh, referring to Washington to stand for the whole United States. Uh, Oftentimes in Scripture, you know, sometimes they'll refer to Judea referring to all the area of Israel. And it's interesting that uh, um, for the Jews, the closer you live to Jerusalem indicated the uh, more holy, uh, the more righteous that you were. Okay? And so, you know, um, in the Gospels, um, particularly uh, when Christ is uh, being tried and whatnot, uh, uh, Peter is recognized for his Galilean accent. And so the righteous Jews of uh, Jerusalem would have looked down their noses at the Galileans, and we get a sense of that uh, in uh, the description of uh, Peter's betrayals. They said, oh, these are Galileans, and that's why they were looked down on, because they lived away from the righteous city of Jerusalem. Okay, other questions? Yes, sir. Um, that's a great question that I'm going to have to get the answer for you. I have known that at one point, but uh, that has uh, slipped my mind. Um, but I'll, I'll uh, have that for you next week. The question was, where did the longer ending of Mark come from? And so uh, um, I'll get some info on that. Yes, sir. Well, um, I purposefully did not try to deal with the dates because scholars are all over the place about each one of the different Gospels. Uh, I think it's likely that John was the last Gospel that was written. Um, There are two different schools of thoughts, typically, Um, although this is like the book of Revelation. There is a scholar who has every to support anything you want to believe about the book of Revelation. Well, the order of the Gospels is kind of the same thing. But most scholars either believe that Mark was written first or that Matthew was written first. And obviously the church tradition was that Matthew was written first. That's why it appears first. Okay, But uh, the scholars that say, well, Mark was likely written first, uh, say that because Mark's uh, material appears uh, more in the other Gospels than any of the other uh, Gospels. Does that make sense that uh, Mark was likely the source for uh, some of the stories that are recounted in the other Gospels? Um, but I think it's likely that John probably was the last Gospel to be written. Okay, And it probably makes sense that the synoptics kind of had the similar perspective, but John um, was likely writing... Uh, 
I would guess sometime um, before A.D. 70, because he doesn't make any mention of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 under the, uh, the Roman forces under Titus. Uh, and so I think it's probably before A.D. 70. We can date the book of Revelation to approximately A.D. 95, but I think it's likely that John wrote uh, both the last gospel and also the last book of the New Testament. Other questions? Hey, well, y'all have been a great audience, and I, I'm grateful to get started, but we're just getting started. And so next week, we're going to focus on the epistles, and we're going to pay particular attention to Romans and Hebrews. So come on back, and then the last week, we'll end up with the Gospel of, or with the gospel of Revelation. No, the book of Revelation. So thanks for being here.